Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Change is hard. Change management within your companies can be a challenging process and one that has uh, you know a lot of twists and turns and depth and details and uh, you know a lot of things that you really need to focus on. As Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences shares on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, change management is a big issue during FDA inspections and as well as other audits from regulatory bodies. So definitely something that you want to get a handle on, definitely something that you want to focus on and and make sure that you're managing appropriately. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And uh, really excited once again uh, to have an opportunity to, to share some thoughts and perspectives and, and information on things that are impacting us in the medical device industry. And today, um, the topic is going to be about uh, change management. And this isn't like big picture change management per se, although I think you know, we might get into that, um, but uh, really more about sort of the day-to-day changes happen for to my product, to my, to my documents, to my processes, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought we would spend a little bit of time talking about uh, how and what and when and all those things that are important for you as med device professionals to consider with respect to change management within your day-to-day lives. And joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast is familiar voice, uh, med device expert, regulatory guru, and, and a good friend of mine, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience, and I'm looking forward to today's discussion on a very, very important topic to everybody. Yeah, and I want to, off the jump, I'll remind folks that you've done, you've spoke about this particular topic and a fair amount. I know we've done uh, some webinars, or you have done some webinars uh, under uh, the Greenlight Guru umbrella in the past on this topic. And folks, we'll, we'll provide links to those so you can go consume those if you haven't already. But I, I, you and I have talked plenty uh, over the years. And and uh, I know change management is one of those things that's like, uh, it's, it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's a frustrating topic. Um, maybe it is, but there is a lot of angst around it. And, and I think specifically, you know, what people do, what they should do, and that sort of thing, that, that's, probably part of the rub. Would you agree? I would agree, John. And just to kind of set the stage for uh, for the rest of our audience to illustrate how, in fact, important this topic is, uh, one of the most common reasons why companies get either warning letters or 483s from the FDA is because of what we're talking about today, and that is change management or the lack thereof. So even though, you know, a lot of companies have, for example, change management sections in their QMS and uh, FDA has put out guidance in terms of uh, when to notify the FDA of a change and when not to, uh, in spite of all of that, or perhaps because of all of that, um, this, this, caused, this, this remains a, a big challenge for our industry. But 
when you approach it from a commonsensical perspective, John, as, as, as I always try to do, it's really not as complicated. It's really not as difficult. It really should not cause as much angst as it seems to. So maybe we can try to lower that anxiety a little bit in our, uh, in our audience by our yeah. discussion today. Yeah, and and uh, I've been thinking of, about obviously on this topic a great deal, and and I'll expand on some of the reasons why I've been thinking about that here in a little bit. But specifically as it relates to this podcast, uh, you know, it's like where do we jump in? And and maybe a good place to start is is maybe with more of a a product centric uh, sort of point of view with respect to change. So let me try to set a scenario and then we'll dive in and, and peel it apart and, and unpack this topic of change as it relates to that. But you know, let's imagine that I just introduced a product uh, to the marketplace or it doesn't have to be just, it could have been three months ago or it could have been three years ago. The time frame is somewhat regardless or irrespective, frankly, because changes will happen. I'll change a material, I'll change a supplier, I'll add a detail to a specification or what have you. There's a whole list of things literally that will happen uh, that fit under this change management umbrella. But maybe a first place to start, let's assume my product uh, has some sort of regulatory uh, approval or clearance uh, or, or some sort of, you know, it needs to, to it, it was regulated in some way in a, a way that required me to get sort of permission, if you will. Uh, to go to market, now I want to make a change to that 510K product or change to that PMA product. What should I do? What should you do? Well, first of all, John, uh, let's differentiate a little bit because we have to be a little careful about overgeneralizing within the medical device universe. Um, clearly, the vast majority of of our audience are involved in class two or lower devices, meaning those devices that were brought onto the market as a 510K or de novo. However, for the small number of people in our audience that are in the class three universe, uh, either a PMA or perhaps an HDE, um, the change requirements are much more stringent. Um, for example, in the 510K and de novo world, uh, many of the changes that uh, companies make to to products, whether it's a change in the design, a change in the materials, a change in the manufacturing methods, many, if not most of those changes are in fact never even reported to the FDA. The company does what we call a letter to file. Um, and we can talk about that more in a moment if you want to. But in the PMA world, we don't have nearly as much flexibility because PMA devices obviously are uh, more complex technologically. They're higher risk. They usually are indicated for more difficult pathophysiologies, oftentimes um, either life-sustaining or life-supporting situations. Um, suffice it to say, making those kinds of changes to a device like that um, almost always you need to notify the FDA, but in the but in the majority of the medical device world, that does not happen. All right. So for the sake of conversation, let's um, let's just make uh, an assumption. And I yeah, I know what assuming does, but let's make an assumption that if you're class three, uh, that yes, absolutely, you're going to be needing to interact with FDA here in the U.S. And certainly outside U.S., um, you know, there's notified bodies and, and other regulatory entities that you're most likely going to be communicating with before you make a change for those higher classification devices. The gray area certainly comes in with like a, certainly a class two. And you, you mentioned letter to file a moment ago. 
And uh, you and I have talked, uh, I think, on previous episodes of the podcast and certainly in one-on-one conversations about this whole letter-to-file notion. But let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, so let's assume that I have a, a 510K clear device and I'm making a change to that. How and what do I need to do to determine whether or not I need to do some sort of, of communication to FDA or other regulatory body versus just documenting um, my change on a letter to file? Great question, John. So given the scenario that you just posed, meaning that we have a class two device that was brought onto the market as a 510K, and for that matter, it doesn't matter. It, it could be a de novo either, uh, but, but it doesn't matter. Uh, if a company wants to make a change to that device, and again, the word change is, is a, has a very broad connotation. It could be a change to the design, material, manufacturing method, um, uh, cosmetic change. It could be lots of different things. The company basically has two options. One is to notify the FDA uh, that they're making that change. And typically the way that's done for a, for a Class two device is a special 510K. A special 510K can be used for several different things, but uh, the most common use of a special 510K is for uh, notifying the FDA of a change to an existing device, the device that's already on the market. So that's option number one. Option number two is to not notify the FDA. And uh, in not notifying the FDA, they basically, the company basically implements the change themselves. Now, hopefully, the company will create a set of documentation to support those changes, uh, oftentimes referred to as a letter to file. And in that documentation, um, this is always my advice, is to describe the change. What is the change? Why are we making it? The testing that we did, if there was any to demonstrate that that change does not impact safety, efficacy, performance, and so on of the device. Any information from the literature, any subject matter experts, any any uh, justifications uh, for why that change will not impact the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on should go into that letter to file. So uh, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, John, the, the one of the biggest reasons, one of the most common reasons why companies get warning letters and 43s from FDA is because of change management. I think, quite frankly, the reason why is because many companies are following the quote-unquote industry standard, which in this case, I think is flat out wrong. Just because something is the industry standard doesn't mean that it's that it's correct. And the industry standard, if you will here, is that a company wants to make a change. They decide, okay, we're either going to notify the FDA as a special 510K or not, do it as a letter to file. And then they do the analysis to determine the significance of that change. In my opinion, John, and feel free to agree or disagree with, with me, but that's totally backwards. What we need to do is we need to do that analysis first. And by the way, I'm not talking about a PhD dissertation here that's going to take, you know, six months or two years. Sometimes we can do this analysis in a few days or maybe even a few hours. Um, but we need to do that analysis first. We need to collect that information, whether it's information from the literature or, or some benchtop testing or something. Sometimes it's real world evidence. And then we make the decision as to whether or not we need to notify the FDA. And if we do, we put that information in a special 510K or we decide we don't need to, to notify the FDA and we take exactly that same information and put it into a letter to file. In my world, John, and this is a very uncommon approach in a lot of, a lot of companies, but the information itself is exactly the same. 
The only difference is the package, if you will, that we put it in. In other words, in one case, we put it into uh, a letter to file and stick it in our three-drawer file cabinet. That's where that phrase originally come from. The other uh, option is to put it in a special 510K package and send it off to the FDA. So the information is the same. It's just what we do with it is different. And just one last thing I would like to add, John. Um, unfortunately, there are those companies out there that will prefer to choose the letter to file route for no other reason than they don't want to deal with the FDA. They think it's going to, you know, be be uh, overly burdensome and and so on and so on. I don't buy into that whatsoever. I think that, um, like I said, the information is exactly the same. It's just what we do with it that's different. Um, does that make sense, John? It does. And um, if I may, I'll chime in a little bit here. Um, I'll, um, ho- hopefully none of you listening are, are following this conventional approach to change management. Um, but this is these are things that I've observed. I think a lot of times whenever I, you know, if I'm in a company and I need to make a change for whatever reason, I start the change process. I start you know, marking up documents and making red lines and and. Sometimes I'm even, I even have a target by which I would need to have this done. And you know, sometimes I'm even coming to the, the change management process probably a little bit later than I should. But uh, anyway, so I start marking up documents. I, I put together my change order form or whatever you call it in your organization. And, uh, and I start the, the routing process. And oftentimes what I've observed is one of the signers on that change uh, record is someone from regulatory and you know i might already have a few signatures on on my change order it's to the regulatory person and then there's a couple of check boxes on my form that say you know do i need to submit to fda do i need to document a letter to file or something of that nature and and uh that's very very late in the process i've i've already made the changes i I really have no idea to, to kind of restate what mike had just shared i really have no idea uh, what the regulatory impact is because I didn't do the scoping. I didn't do any sort of assessment. I didn't do, do any sort of analysis before I started marking up documents and, and that sort of thing. And I, I think that's all too common. I, hopefully uh, you're seeing a different practice these days, but my suspicion is probably not. Well, let's see if we can connect the dots between what you just said, John, and when I said a moment before that. So I'm assuming that when you get to the point of, to use your phrase, marking up documents, that we or somebody has already done that preliminary analysis that I just tried to describe a minute or two ago, doing the uh, the, the analysis. I don't want to get people paranoid by by assuming that we have to do some physical testing to support that change. Sometimes we do have to do some physical testing, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes it could be just a matter of using information from the literature or real-world evidence or subject matter experts or something. But am I correct to assume, John, that when you start talking about marking up those documents, you would advise uh, our audience to make sure that somebody has done that analysis first? Oh, absolutely. I, I, my um, my scenario, and again, hopefully it does not apply to anyone on uh, listening to today's episode, 
but what I've observed is the analysis, the marking up of documents happens way before the analysis. <laughs> the analysis <laughs> oftentimes. And that's the problem. Yeah. That's right. the problem. <laughs> um, that's but, a no, huge I'm, problem. <laughs> I'm 100% uh, an advocate, and, and I can't stress enough how important it is that before you start marking up documents, you, know, you have to define and scope what this change is. Uh, you have to identify stakeholders um, who, uh, from your company, should be involved in that process. And absolutely, 100%, uh, you need to assess the regulatory impact way before you start doing you know, too many document markups and, and routing something for signature. That analysis on the front end is so important. Um, it's really important because let's let's uh, let's unpack this a little bit more. If I'm making a change and I do some sort of regulatory analysis, and you know through that analysis I determine that I have to you know part of what I need to do is is communicate to FDA and let's just say a special 510k. Uh, there's effort to do that, and there's a time uh, element to that too. That that's somewhat out of my hands. I I need to have the feedback and and the go ahead, if you will, from F FDA in those types of scenarios. If that's the type of change that I'm making, so uh, you shouldn't be starting to route things for review and approval unless you you've uh, crossed that bridge first from a regulatory perspective. I agree, John. The only thing that I would um, perhaps modify slightly with what you just said is on the regulatory analysis piece. To me, even though I'm a regulatory consultant, the regulatory analysis is the least important thing. What's much more important, and I think oh, yeah. you and I, John, are singing exactly the same song, but in a, in, a, in a different key, it's the engineering and the biological analysis that's much more important first. For in sure. other words, we need to demonstrate that depending on the nature of our change, that um, from an engineering and a biology perspective, it's not going to impact safety and efficacy performance. Once we answer that question, then we can proceed with our regulatory analysis. So let's not put the cart in front of the horse. Um, that's fair. No, I just going to say, that's a fair clarification. I, um, you know, I think sometimes... Um, uh, I get a little anxious on timeline stuff. I think that's the old project manager coming out of me. And, and uh, you know, I look at regulatory ramifications could have, you know, maybe a, a significant influence on my timeline, if you will. So, but, but thanks for the clarification. I think that's really, really important and probably important enough that we spend a little bit more time on, on that aspect of change. Sure, I'd be happy to. And perhaps... To illustrate, you know, to help our under, our audience understand better, uh, thus far we've been talking at a sort of pretty high level, you know, sort of a, a, a generic level. Perhaps if we take, you know, one or a couple of examples of, of specific changes, you and I can talk about how we would handle them. Um, but before we do that, John, there's just one last thing that I'd like to say quickly about the letter to file, because some people... They ask me, well, where does it say that I'm required to do that, uh, to create that letter to file and to put into it all of those things that I mentioned earlier? Well, suffice it to say, nowhere. You know, FDA doesn't regulate the, the letter to file unless something really bad happens. FDA will never even see your letter to file. Uh, but the reason why I recommend highly companies do it and do a good job at it 
is for one simple reason, John. I want to avoid a scenario that I see happen all too, all too frequently where a company makes a modification to a device on the market. For whatever reasons, they don't notify the FDA. A few months down the road, a knock comes on their door. It's the FDA. They say, hey, you seem to have modified this medical device compared to when you originally brought it to us. We don't remember you ever coming and talking to us about it. What the heck is going on here? What I want to avoid, John, is a scenario where I say, oh, gee, I forgot, or worse, oh, gee, you caught me. I want to be able to say, oh, Mr. FDA or Mr. or Mrs. FDA uh, reviewer or inspector, come on in, sit down, have a cup of coffee. I don't know, John, are we still allowed to give them coffee? I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't let me, know. <laughs> <laughs> let me pull out my letter to file, which we graded, you know, three months ago or six months ago, whatever it is. In here is the complete story of here's the change that we made. Here's why we made it. Here's the testing or the literature or whatever information to support that that change did not impact safety, efficacy, performance, blah, blah, blah. And icing on the cake, John, if you can, here are some examples of other companies that have made similar changes that haven't notified the FDA either. In other words, John, I want to demonstrate to my friends at the FDA that I know what the heck that I'm doing and that I'm not forgetting anything. And I'm certainly not covering up anything. It's just that we went through this analysis and uh, we decided it's not so much a regulatory decision, John, it's really a business decision. We decided that it was not necessary to uh, to notify the FDA. And the reason why I recommend that, John, is because worst case scenario, if the FDA says, gee, thank you for your explanation, we think you should have notified us, I say, fine, we'll take this information from my letter to file, we'll repackage it into a special 510K, you'll have it next week, right? So it's, it's, it's to me, it makes sense, but unfortunately, it's not, at least in my experience, John, and again, feel free to agree or disagree, it's not the, the way that a lot of companies approach this. Yeah, I, I have two um, things to add to that. Um, first thing to add is, although um, the example uh, or the scenarios that Mike and I are, are weaving through today on the topic of change management sound may sound as though they're only applicable to FDA, I want you to understand that, that this topic, th this very workflow that we're, we're touching on is also applicable regardless of where in the world you are selling uh, your medical devices. You know, and if it's outside the United States, say the EU or, or uh, for example, uh, you're working with a notified body and, and notified bodies, they have uh, criteria and, you know, decision trees and, and each of them has their own sort of unique or twist on it, so to speak. But you should have clear communication from your notified body on when to notify your notified body of changes and when you do not. And so the letter to file concept is not just an FDA thing. It is, it is a global medical device workflow. The other point that I, I, I cannot stress enough because I've seen it all too many times uh, done poorly, a lot of times people see the letter to, or when they go through a regulatory analysis and they make the decision that it's a letter to file, and I'm hammering a point that I think you're making too, is that they didn't document anything or that they automatically or uh, somehow assume that, oh, letter to file means I have to do less work. Uh, and so much so that I think sometimes people are like, let's go to the letter to file path because it means less work on our end. And, and that is... That I is, see that all too frequently myself, John. I, I, I think that's very unfortunate. All right. So let me uh, take a, a brief pause and we'll get back to the topic of change management. And 
I guess maybe I'm continuing with the theme. So you might have seen recently that uh, Greenlight Guru an- announced that we have an enhanced change management capabilities in the Greenlight Guru medical device QMS software platform. So uh, we'll, we'll include a link to the, the announcement, but certainly something you want to check out uh, and, and certainly want to encourage you to, to learn more about the Greenlight Guru medical device quality management system software platform. It is designed only for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. And uh, the change management workflows uh, is a connected ecosystem within your QMS. So all the design and development, the risk management, quality events, document management, and so on and so forth, it's, it's, it's all in a connected ecosystem and a single source of truth so you can better manage your changes to to the things that you're doing uh, within your world. So be sure to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about the enhanced change management capabilities in the entire MDQMS platform that we offer at Greenlight Guru. All right, so Mike, let's uh, let's dive in a little bit more about changes. I think we covered sort of the some more of the major points uh, from my perspective anyway on change management. But uh, maybe diving into a little bit more. I mean, we talked a little bit about process, sort of kind of. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the importance of basically supporting your decisions uh, that you're making and, and, and doing so with objective evidence and documentation. Um, what other things should we unpack on the topic of change management? that uh, well, might be important for our listeners? Perhaps, John, as I suggested a moment ago, we can take uh, uh, one or two, depending on time, specific examples of changes and talk about uh, how would we approach them. And okay. uh, I'll start out with one from my world. A catheter company came to me a couple of years ago, and they wanted to move the logo of the catheter from one side of the hub to the other side. And simply put, and and that was the only change that they wanted to do, just move the company logo from one side of the hub of the catheter to the other side. And incidentally, the reason why they wanted to do that is because when the cardiologist used this particular catheter, the logo of the company was was facing down. Nobody saw it. And of course, that did not make the marketing people happy. (laughs) So so they wanted to move to... (laughs) Yeah, they could have put it on both sides, I suppose. But in this case, as I recall, they wanted to move it from one side to the other. In that particular situation, John, do you think that we would need to notify the FDA of that kind of a change? This feels like a trap question, but I'll play along. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I would say uh, in that scenario, um, well, first, let me give the the disclaimer, standard quality regulatory response of it depends. But based on the way you said it, <laughs> the way you set up the scenario, I, I would, of course, I would corroborate this with, with uh, an analysis and documentation and a a thorough letter to file. But I would say, assuming I go through all those steps, that no, this doesn't seem like the type of thing that I'm going to have to notify the FDA about. Well, first of all, John, I did not mean to put you on the spot. I just it's thought okay. it would be an interesting, uh, you know, simple, you know, example that rather than talking in, you know, platitudes, you know, let's get into the into the weeds a little bit here. So, <clears throat> pardon me. The short answer to that question, John, is that there is nobody on earth, including the FDA, that can answer that question simply based on the information that I've provided. 
Nobody can answer that. But most people would probably assume, as you did, that this is a trivial change, that it can't possibly impact, you know, the functionality of the device. And as a result, we don't have to, uh, you know, notify FDA, yada, yada, yada. But not to be self-serving, but because the company was working with me, I suggested that we need to do a bit of an analysis. Again, we're not talking about, you know, a six-month dissertation here, but a small analysis to determine whether or not this change would impact any safety, efficacy, performance. And long story short, John, after doing a little bit of testing, we determined that it did actually change the way the cardiologists use this particular catheter. As a result, the company, because we were definitely in the gray area, John, between letter to file versus special 510K, this particular company decided to be error on the side of conservatism and notify the FDA uh, of this particular change as a, as a special 510K. And FDA basically said, thank you very much for letting us know. No problem. Uh, but I guarantee, John, that in a, exactly the same scenario, with the same information, another catheter company might have decided to do it as a letter to file instead. So this is what I meant earlier when I said that this is not so much a regulatory decision, it's a business decision. As long as we've done that analysis or whatever you want to call it beforehand, before we answer the question, I have no problem with that. It's when we answer the question first without doing that analysis, that's where I have a bit of a problem. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, let's talk about another type of change. Um, so um, let's, I'm a catheter guy, so hopefully uh, those listening who are not catheter people can play along and, and follow along. But uh, let's, let's assume that I have a, a, polyurethane, a catheter that, that is made of polyurethane, and uh, I decide that I want to change the material to polyethylene. Now, I know some, some engineers might be listening and say, that's crazy. Why in the world would you do that? Just go with me. This is just a philosophical example. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to change from polyurethane to polyethylene. And I, you know, it's a 510K clear device. What should I do in that scenario? Well, that's a great question, John. And, and you know, uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So I'm glad you're, you know, you're turning the table a little bit. But simply put, the process, the regulatory logic, the thinking is exactly the same. We need to do some analysis to determine whether or not that change in material is going to impact safety, efficacy, performance, and so on, which means not getting into too much of the weeds here, uh, but we're probably going to have to do some mechanical uh, um, uh, um, testing uh, comparison. Sure. We're probably going to have to do some material or chemical comparison, i.e. biocompatibility. But once again, the fundamental question remains, at the end of the day, does this material change uh, impact the safety, efficacy, performance uh, of the device? Yeah, straightforward. Should we dive into what, more what examples? What would you add to that? Well, uh, well I can give you a, tw a twist on that one, John. Sure, uh, go for it. So I had, a, I had a similar, this was actually not a catheter, but this was a lap, laparoscope. Uh, I had a, um, uh, a company come to me, and they wanted to make a change in the material uh, for a portion of the laparoscope. Uh, similar to what you just said, they wanted to switch from one FDA-friendly material, uh, but, the, but the wrinkle here is they wanted to switch to using two FDA-friendly materials. And by the way, 
for those in the audience that are not familiar with that phrase, FDA-friendly material, it's sort of code speak for just saying that it's a material that has a, a well-established history of use in lots of different medical devices. The FDA is very familiar with it and so on and so on. So this particular company wanted to use two, they wanted to combine. One of the engineers was kind of clever and he, he figured that we could get better mechanical properties if we combine these two FDA-friendly materials together. So let me just make sure that you and everybody else understands. We have one FDA material, FDA-friendly material that has a long history of use. We have a second FDA-friendly material that also has a long history of use. But we combined the two together, and now uh, that's never been done before. And so part of the interesting uh, um, uh, part of this particular project, John, is does this constitute a new material? You know, it's 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 two existing materials that are combined together. I don't want to get into a lot of biomaterials here, but does that constitute uh, a, a new material? Well, long story short, once again, John, we went through exactly the same analysis uh, to determine that it would not impact safety, efficacy, or performance, which it didn't. Um, although the reason why the company wanted to change the material was to get an improvement in, perform in performance, but it didn't impact safety and efficacy. But because we were in the gray area, John, and in this particular case, we were closer to the notification side of the spectrum than the non-notification side of the spectrum, the company did decide to notify the FDA. FDA asked a few questions along those lines, but once again, it wasn't a big deal. So, Part of the reason why I'm sharing this, uh, these examples, John, is because companies should not fear making changes to devices simply because they want they don't want to deal with the FDA. You know, yeah. one of the things that bothers me, John, is um, there are some companies that I work with. Um, um, fortunately, not too many, but there are some companies. One in particular, a very very large company, that has has said has made as a matter of company policy, has told their R and D engineers only make changes to our devices to the point where we can handle them as a letter to file. Do not make a change to the device that crosses that magic line. That means that we would have to notify the FDA. And the reason why that bothers me so much, John, perhaps as a, as a former R&D engineer, it just makes my blood pressure go up. Can you imagine any better way to stifle innovation than to create that kind of a limitation on R&D engineers? I don't know about you, John, but to me, that's a problem. So, yeah. so change, we should have a change management system, definitely, but it should not be so, um, how do you want to say, burdensome that it actually inhibits or prevents improvements in products. Yeah, and I, I've heard, uh, unfortunately, a similar story. I'm, you know, fairly closely connected with some of the folks that are involved with the um, Case for Quality Initiative uh, and the Medical Device Discovery Appraisal Program that's underway in a pilot program with FDA. Um, and you and I spoke about that on a recent episode of the the uh, Global Medical Device Podcast. But the scenario that I heard um, that was, I think, somewhat enlightening to uh, FDA and the folks doing the the uh, appraisal assessments, uh, they were the, the initial scope of the pilot was focused on um, I, I'll say incentives uh, for companies with Class Three products. And what they uncovered through in more than one case is that a lot of companies were sitting on changes that would improve the safety and efficacy of their Class Three products, 
because if they made a change, it would have required a PMA supplement and, you know, communicating with the FDA. So instead, what these companies were choosing to do was not make changes that would have improved the product, which in turn would have helped improve the safety and efficacy and improve the quality of the patient's life receiving those. That's that. That would be, I mean, I, I would hate to be in that scenario. I would as well, John. And that, quite frankly, is something that gives regulation and the FDA a bad name, because I would hope that we can all agree that that is not the intent of having regulation. As a matter of fact, that's the antithesis of having yeah. regulation. But regrettably, it does happen, and it happens perhaps more frequently uh, than we would like to, to, to admit. One last example I would share with you, John, just to illustrate sort of taking that PMA example even a step further. Uh, in our audience, you know, it's primarily a medical device audience, and we know that in the medical device world, medical device development is very iterative. In other words, we come out with a device, we make a little change to it, we have another device, we make a little change to it, we have another device, and so on and so on. In the drug world, by contrast, it's very, very different. Once a drug company gets a drug onto the market, they don't want to change anything about it. I mean, literally anything because of the reasons that you just described, because in the drug world, you know, the uh, even much more than the PMA world, the, the, the requirements are, are much more stringent for all the obvious reasons. But the reason why I bring this up, John, is because coincidentally, uh, just earlier this week, I spent a couple of days um, doing a in-house workshop for a major pharma company uh, who is getting into combination products. As you know, John, I do a lot of work in combo products. And one of the topics that came up and generated an awful lot of discussion was change management when it comes to a combination product. And this particular company, uh, well, let me let me take sort of a generic example. Let's consider a, a pre-filled syringe. Uh, a pre-filled syringe is a combination product. What if we uh, wanted to make a change to the color of the um, little lines that are etched on the side of the syringe to tell you how much has uh, how much of the drug is being injected in, into the into the to the patient? Well, keep in mind, John, this was a major pharma company, and virtually everybody in the audience was coming from a drug background, not a medical device background. Everybody in the audience, they were rolling their eyes. They were pulling their hair out uh, for, for, for such a seemingly simple... I mean, you're laughing, John, but I hope you and, my, and our audience appreciates my not-so-subtle use of humor here. Um, to, 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 to make it so burdensome just to change the, the, the color or to change the font, or another question I asked is, um, uh, with this particular product, you know, it was just, uh, the units were displayed in um, uh, milliliters, and if we wanted to just do nothing more than convert it to CCs, this is a very laborious uh, 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 process in the coming from the drug world. And so now one of the many challenges that we face with combination products, on the device side, we make changes all the time. Sometimes we notify the FDA, other times we don't. In the drug world, we rarely ever make changes. And when we do, regardless of how trivial it is, we notify the FDA. So when you put the two together, what do we do? Well, perhaps, John, I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, but but you understand the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's... uh... Yeah, and, and I think there again, I'm, I mean, I, I know enough about pharma to be dangerous. Um, uh, I, I leave those t- 
types of questions to my good friend Mike Drews, but you know, <laughs> it, but it is it is interesting though to, to think about um, how uh, regulatory impact has um, created a, a perception and almost a way of doing business that isn't always in the best interest of the patients who are going to be receiving our products. Um, but one thing I would emphasize, John, with that yeah. last example on the combination products, you know, even though the drug um, regulation for change management is drastically different than the device regulation for change management, philosophically to me, they're exactly the same. In other words, when I was in this company the other uh, few days, we applied that same logic that I just described. You do the analysis to make sure it's not going to impact. In this particular case, you do some some quick and dirty usability testing or you know a few other things just to make sure that the, that the user, for example, is still going to be able to use the product in the same way if we change the color, if we change the font, if we change, you know, whatever it is. So the thinking, if you, if you, I think there's too much emphasis, you know, on, on, on reading and following the regulation. What we need to be thinking about is what is the intent of that regulation? Or as I like to say, what is the regulatory logic? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. I, I think that sometimes that, um, I mean, that's why we're talking about this topic of change because there's uh, there's a lot of of um, well poor practices to be quite honest. That and, and to your earlier point uh, that um, can be a trigger for 43 observations and, and warning letters and and things of that nature that you know no one ever wants to go through that sort of thing. So. I think the the challenge that I would like to pose to, to those listening is how can we improve our our internal change management practices uh, in a way that ultimately has the patient focus of improving and ensuring the highest safety and efficacy of our products. I mean, it's philosophical, but it should be our, our guidepost, so to speak, that that's that's our objective. And if we need to make a change, to something, you know, even if it seems as simple and innocuous as going from mLs, milliliters to cc's, which, by the way, those folks are the, those are the same number. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, if it's that innocuous, I, I shouldn't. But it's important to the caregiver uh, because they speak cc's and they don't speak mLs. Well, you know, then, then maybe I should go through the process to, to to make sure that I'm doing the proper analysis and assessment of that change. Because if, if ultimately it's going to result in better care, then then that should be what I'm after as a medical device professional. And I, I didn't mean to wax too philosophical on you, <laughs> Mike, but... No, that's okay. Listen, in, in the spirit of making the world a better place, I would like to make one last suggestion, and then we can wrap this up if that's okay with you, John. One of the things that I see a lot of companies run into is they make a change to a device. They... The, decide that that change is not significant so they don't make uh, sorry they don't notify the FDA then they make another change to the device they decide that it's not significant they don't notify the FDA they make a third change to the device they decide it's not significant they don't notify FDA and so on and so on and so on this is leading to a phenomenon I call change creep you're very familiar with predicate creep, John. We've talked about this many times in the 510K universe, but this is the same thing, change creep. The, we don't have a mechanism in place 
we don't have a type of 510K, for example, what some people refer to as a catch-up 510K, where you can roll all of these changes that you've made into one 510K and give it to the FDA as sort of an update. You know, in other words, I would like, and I've suggested this to FDA many, many times, we need some mechanism, whether it's another form of a 510K or something else, I don't really care, but some mechanism in place where we can update the FDA is to, a ser- you know, we've made a series of these changes. In other words, I want to be able to walk into the FDA and say, hey, we haven't talked to you for a while. We just want to let you know that we've made the following changes to our product over the last two years or something. We haven't told you about it because each change individually was, you know, relatively trivial, but we just now we've, we've made a number of changes and we want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Unfortunately, John, we have no regulatory mechanism to allow us to do that. And I think that's a big problem. Yeah. I refuse to use regulation as an excuse to hold me back. I refuse to blame regulation or FDA to not allow me to do what I need to do, what I know I should do as a professional biomedical engineer or regulatory consultant. So here's my solution to that. If you take those changes and you submit it to FDA, uh, they'll throw it right back at your face because they say, well, we don't know what to do with this because we don't have a bucket to put it in. So instead, what I say to companies is, all right, Pick out one of these changes that you think might be significant enough that you need to notify the FDA or you could notify the FDA via a special 510K. And then while you're doing that, roll in those other changes uh, into that special 510K as well. So essentially, John, I'm creating my own version of a catch-up 510K. And by the way, I don't mean catch-up like ketchup and mustard that you referred to in your infamous <laughs> substantial equivalence video. But a ketchup, I'm glad I could get you to laugh, uh, a ketchup 510K, meaning it's an opportunity to get FDA updated and onto the same page um, to, to, so that we don't have problems uh, further down the road when it comes to a, uh, in a, in an inspection or an audit or, or something like that. I'm curious, John, what do you think of that idea? Well, I think it's. I mean, this this is why we're talking is to try to pr- promote and and suggest better ways of doing things, especially around the topic of change management. I mean, clearly, what we generally speaking as an industry are doing is is um, it's poor. Uh, just being quite honest with folks and and um, not trying to offend anybody, but. Uh, I think we're looking at at uh, the overall uh, concept of change management from the wrong lens. I think we, we've touched on it quite a bit in this conversation today, but I, th- I think we put too much weight or too much emphasis on the regulatory do's and do nots. And because of of that weight that we put on that, that, that drives what we do or do not do. And um, and I think we're missing it. I, I just think we, we have more work to do as an industry uh, when it comes to change management, so yeah, I, I I'm glad we had the chance to talk about this. This is a we've talked about change. You and I have talked about change quite a bit in the past, but this is a little bit of a different uh, twist on it, if you will. So, um, Mike, any well, I'm glad you think that way, John. And I, and I know that we have a lot of people that listen to our discussions, and I know even some of my FDA friends listen to our discussions as well. Uh, although I'm sure they will never admit to that publicly, <laughs> but uh, but maybe they will take that back to the agency. I've suggested that to the agency many, many times. Uh, maybe they'll take that back to the agency and we'll figure out 
you know, some mechanism, like I said, what it looks like or, or you know, what we call it, I could care less. But we need that mechanism where uh, companies can prophylactically notify or update FDA uh, before problems occur later yeah. on. And my pragmatic solution is to create what I call a catch-up 510K, but put yeah. it in a special 510K package. Yeah, Mike, there's there's a, a lot here, and I'm, I'm sure we're I, well. I know we're just skimming the surface. Uh, so um, thank you for taking some some time to uh, have a, a wonderful conversation on the topic of change management. And and folks, um, as I mentioned at the the beginning, there's uh, a webinar that Mike did with Greenlight Guru uh, a bit ago, but it's available on demand. I'll make sure you guys all get the link to that. So check that out. Uh, you can watch it at your leisure. There's a lot more depth of detail that Mike goes through on the topic of change. Uh, some of it absolutely will be reinforced by what you're listening to today. And then um, uh, I actually did a webinar recently too with FDA News on the topic of change management. Again, uh, I think you'll find all of this complementary to one another and it's all for the this, the sake of trying to to help uh, suggest best practices, you know, things that, that should be incorporated into a robust change management uh, practice. So be sure to check those things out. And um, I want to thank Mike, as always. And folks, again, uh, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help. Uh, it's, you know, it's a <laughs> to go a little bit higher from a change. Uh, changes are, are constant. And, and I was actually expecting Mike to, to remember or to, to, uh, to quote the, the famous quote, the more things change, or, <laughs> the, 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 the more, more things change, the more they remain the same. The more they remain the same. And at the same time, it, it does not feel that way uh, because there are you know changes in regulations, EUMDR. There's a new 14971 uh, revision that was published a few days ago. Uh, you know, FDA has said they're moving from 820 to 1345. So there's a lot of, of uh, regulatory changes that are happening and will continue to happen. And you know what? We've got you covered here at Greenlight Guru. So uh, we're happy to help. So learn more about how we can help. Go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And as always, thank you so much uh, for being a loyal listener. Share this with your friends and colleagues and stay tuned to the next episode of the Global Medical Device podcast coming here real soon.